and welcome to Suds, the weekly podcast where we choose the best guests from the Startup Daily Show every weekday, 2pm on Ausbiz and hear some of their views here on our podcast. My name is Simon Thompson. I'm the editor of StartupDaily.net, host of the show and of course, this podcast, Suds. My special guest today is a man who needs no introduction, but he's going to get one anyway, Mick Labinskis from Climate Salad. Mick, thank you so much. Great to have you join us. Hey, Simon. Great to be here. Now, every week on the show, we talk about a big issue. We're going to talk about the big news of the week. And of course, we're going to hear a little bit about our guests before we get on to three spectacular guests we had on the show this week. First one was Sally Ann Williams from Cicada Innovations, who did a great piece for StartupDaily.net around the conversations we need to be having at this point in time in science and tech. Some really interesting insights. Matt Vitale from the crowdfunding platform Virtual Catchup off the back of his annual report into crowdfunding for FY22. Interestingly, it jumped by around 86% on 2021 to more than $80 million, so big growth there. And we're also going to hear from Julie Bowen, who is from the US not-for-profit MITRE Corporation, which collaborates with the tech sector and governments around the world on issues such as cybersecurity. She's been visiting Australia this week and was down in Adelaide at Lot 14 for a new initiative they have coming out of there, which is putting Adelaide on the map as one of the great cybersecurity collaborators with the US. But let's kick off with the big news. And Mick, I normally focus a lot on tech in this one, and it's related. But of course, the big news, especially from a climate seller perspective, was the report that came out on the environment here in Australia. It was pretty extraordinary, the highly anticipated State of the Environment report, which was released this week. It found a number of listed threatened species has risen 8% since 2016. More extinctions are expected. 30 experts have been involved. It is a pretty sobering read since the last report. They've been doing it for 25 years now. The last one was out in 2017. How did you feel as you had a look at it? It was the first time that included some Indigenous co-authors, so I brought a new layer to it, which was fantastic. But, mate, I can't say that I was fist-pumping as I had a look through it. Look, it's not uh, particularly exciting. It all depends on who's reading it and where they are at. So I I kind of... Uh, I'm already... In, I've been in the choir for five years, so when yep. I see this stuff, I... You know the hymn sheet. I, it's really interesting to think about how it's developing and progressing and how they tell the story because that's really important. But I, I do really think about of the people we want to influence and get to understand this and get in the choir, how do they see this? How do, and it changes completely, right? So if you read this last year and you're living in Lismore, you might be like, nah, so what? But maybe this doesn't affect me. You've had four or five once in a hundred year floods, and maybe you're like, "I'm gonna well, let me let me have a look at this again." So, what's been a pain in Western Sydney? You know, I mean, Lismore's my old stomping ground, and yeah. my heart is broken, and many hearts up there are still that yeah. way as they try to get their lives back together. But we've seen it in Western Sydney, which is our food basin, massive development. Big issues, and we're talking hundreds of thousands of people. I mean, I think 40,000 people were evacuated in this last couple of weeks as yeah. they dealt with this. Yeah. Yeah, look, it is um, heartbreaking. I think the thing to, that it really clearly says is that climate problems are not somewhere in the future. They are now. And if we, if you think that we sh- um, should not be reacting to this like it's an emergency, you're wrong. Um, it may not, not be... It may not be just a single emergency, uh, and that's the scary part is it's actually 100 emergencies. 
I think the thing, the, the other challenge with it is it still feels separated from individual behaviour, right? So I can look at this and say, I get it, I get there's a problem, I get that it's bad, I understand. Um, the challenge at the end of it is what can I do about it? And I, I, look, I'm really glad that they're including the Indigenous component. Yeah. Because what that says to me is uh, it's not just like a few things to fix. Someone this morning was like, um, I saw they tweeted and said, yeah, everyone was talking about um, chlorofluorocarbons 30 years ago and now no one even worries about it. You're like, because we fixed the problem. Yeah, we made some massive changes <laughs> we, along the way. We made enormous changes and fixed it. But yeah, go and read the back of your fridge. Exactly, exactly. But we, we, and we still need to go and change them, absolutely. But what the climate change broadly actually says there are hundreds of problems. We fixed one of the. There's 99 more to go. And it is very complex. It is multifaceted. And there's not a single uh, panacea for it. So how do, we go and, how do we go and do it? And the Indigenous part says to the heart that it is about consumption. Is it about constant growth? Like there are problems with capitalism, like un, unchecked. Um, and that is that is challenging. And again, I don't, I don't want to say that we've got to dismantle all of that before we solve climate because we can't. But the beautiful thing about Indigenous was they lived in harmony with the environment for 60,000 years. Um, there, surely there's something positive we can learn from them about sustainability. Yeah, and uh, as someone who still has an iPhone 6, you know, just how many ex-iPhones we need in order to lead better lives is an interesting question. I do want to point out, you know, and there are some really good pieces around this on theconversation.com, which I'm a big fan of. The one I do want to signal, single out in this is a piece by Kevin Trenberth, who is a distinguished scholar at uh, Auckland University, who did a piece where he said how not to solve the climate change problem. And he talks about when politicians talk about reaching net zero emissions, they're often counting on trees or technology that can pull carbon dioxide out of the air. What they don't mention is just how much these proposals or geoengineering would cost to allow the world to continue burning fossil fuels. Interesting point on that one. He's been working on this for four decades. So it's well worth a read. I just wanted to see... Uh, point that one out. We're going to talk about this a little in a few moments in the big idea. But Mick, I want to talk about you first. How did you come to this space and climate salad? It's new on the scene. So tell us a little bit about it for people who haven't heard about climate salad. Yeah, I'd love to. So really quickly, the the, the uh, origin story of climate salad is um, that I have been a geek my whole life started building out startups, started building startup programs with Polonizer, start made at Muradi. That took me to the US. Uh, and then my best mate in the world who um, uh, works in climate tech, uh, works in environmental sustainable finance, said, mate, it's time to get in the game. And he, sent, he attached three reports like this one. And as a data three, I read it and said, oh, my goodness, uh, I need to go and help. Uh, and that started me on the journey around uh, working not just in tech but in, in sustainability, clean tech and climate tech. Uh, that was really hard work for the first five years, but a year ago there was a number of uh, inflection points. The finance world, you know, thanks to things like Larry Fink's BlackRock uh, letter to and uh, ESG money moving over, like Future Super and others, uh, like basically the finance started to come the consumers and businesses started to understand the problem. Government policy, most places in the world, started to appreciate the problem. There was just this... A, uh, a tectonic shift in thinking at that point. There really was. It all came together and what was a trickle, like as you know, you know, startups sometimes take a long time to get going and this is a startup was the same and then it, then it took off. And Climate Salad is, uh, is a network of climate tech entrepreneurs, mentors, investors, scientists, supporters with a mission to help 
Australian and New Zealand climate tech companies get to global scale. And that's, that's my, the best thing I can do to look at my kids and not feel guilty about buying another iPhone and another pair of jeans and, and driving a combustion car, because I, I do, um, is that if I, can, if I can help grow these climate tech companies, then maybe there's a, there's a chance we can reduce the climate emergency problems. And part of what you've been doing and working hard on recently, of course, has been painting this picture so that we understand it, so that we measure it, so we know where we are and what's going on. Tell us a little bit about the work you've been doing in that space in just trying to figure out the diversity that we see in terms of climate tech solutions. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, we, Climate Cell has been going for just on a year. We had our birthday uh, last week, and thanks for sharing some, some cake with us, Simon. Um, we, um, and over that time, we've gone from five climate tech companies to 200, and but the, what we absolutely did know was um, there, there's complexity and there's a lot new around climate tech that we didn't fully understand. Again, I've been in climate, sorry, in tech for 25 years. Climate tech's a bit different. Mm. You're talking about nuclear fusion. You're talking about cell cultured uh, foods. Uh, you're talking about uh, plastics from kelp. Like, there's some different things going on here. So, we started last year with Whole and IQ to do a quick audit of the industry, and we found 684 companies in Australia, New Zealand, who identify as climate tech. But six, about six months ago, we realised we have to go another level deeper. We have to really run a census on this industry and understand it. So we, we ran the first ever Australia-New Zealand Climate Tech Industry Report. We surveyed 173 companies and found some amazing things. 39% of them have a, have a female founder. Fantastic diversity. Nearly half of them have a founder who is a first or second generation immigrant. Uh, and then across sectors, there was a real breadth of sectors because climate is a is a real uh, umbrella ter uh, terminology we use. We have a lot of companies in circular economy, energy, renewables, so solar, uh, sorry, storage, uh, data and finance. Like there was a real spread. They have raised one point four billion dollars already, and half of that from international investors. Incredible, and and their ambition alone. And I'll say it's their ambition, knowing that startups have a. Uh, you know, bold ambitions, uh, is a 1,000 gigatons of carbon to be removed from the environment just from 173 companies. So you read these other reports that we just talked about and it's okay to, to and again, I know Sally-Ann talks about that in terms of balancing hope, uh, balancing fear with hope. Um, but you can read these reports and feel a bit of anxiety and think that's, that maybe we should give up. But then you look at this industry report and you think, you know what? There's a, there's, we've got some really good people working on solving these problems. And I remember saying this at the time when the report came out, the possibility that it can deliver 2,000 extra jobs over the next 12 months is one of those things that should make every politician's ears prick up and take notice because, of course, at a time, especially when the tech sector is starting to sort of lay people off, mm. climate tech is a great opportunity and a great employment opportunity as well. Absolutely not slowing down, and it can't slow down. You know, we can't, you, we can't wait till twenty twenty nine and cram on this like we did in, um, you know, high school uh, tests. Yeah, uh, there's we, no midnight and th coffees. Th on there's this. no midnight coffees on this one. We need to start now, and um, so that, so absolutely, we need to keep uh, growing in terms of investment in this space. Or as you said, or, already four thousand jobs, but another two thousand jobs expected in the next twelve months. Like climate tech is something that is going to absolutely thrive regardless of the economic conditions because enough of the world understand that it has to. Now, let's take us to the big idea and, and it follows on from the conversation we're already ha having, but I do want to drill down a little bit deeper, Mick. 
Um, you know, it is tough for tech at the moment. They're talking about down rounds. They're talking about falling valuations. They're talking about capital maybe being scarce. But the other side of that normally is every time we have a downturn, it's a great opportunity for tech businesses to really get cracking. Politicians talk a lot about 2050 and it all feels a little while off. It's still more than a generation away. But the point is the work we put in now, a little bit like superannuation, will pay off big time down the track. So your argument is that we really, really need to crank things up right now. We do. We absolutely do for all reasons, for the for the economy and the jobs, because they're not going to come simply, right? Even if even if the dream of hydrogen comes true, and I think it's a long shot, but um, we have to have some of it, but it's not going to solve all our problems. Somebody who works in oil and gas can't instantly convert to hydrogen tomorrow. We don't have the technology. So we need to start all of that work right now. And some of the technology is actually still in its very early phases. Solar and wind, absolutely already the lower, the cheapest energy source on the planet. Let's scale, let's roll that out. Let's, let's, let's put it on every rooftop in the world, absolutely. But then there's a whole lot of other technologies which are going to take a while to develop. And if, if we want to be, if we want to not be talking about um, monthly climate catastrophes in 2030, we need to be doing the work now. Um, and I'm kind of sad again that we are having these floods and heat waves and, uh, you know, the amount of people dying today in Europe based on heat waves with record. I've got a seven-year-old daughter. Every year of her life has been the hottest year on record, right? It's like, it's just, it's, it's now. So hopefully that gives us the impetus to actually invest now. And my view is actually the business side, the business opportunity of climate tech is not just the superannuation levels of it'll be slightly good when it retires. I'm, I'm talking hundreds, if not thousands times return because we still don't factor in the full cost of the environment or carbon or, or biodiversity into our core business models of the entire planet. There's a lot of hidden costs that are actually amortised across broader society in most businesses on this front. The investment side is the interesting one I do want to talk to you about, and I want to get your pitch to VCs thinking about this because, of course, some of them have done very well out of SaaS businesses in the last few years, and we've seen some amazing Australian companies emerge. What you just said before, is it possible that you can invest in climate tech companies and get a massive payoff? Can you walk away with a 50x or 100x if that's your desire, or should you be doing it with your hand on your heart because it's the right thing to do? Absolutely not. Like, I think you want to do both, right? I think to, to have a business these days which actually is uh, is anti, is negative for the the environment, I think is a is a bad idea moral-wise and also financially because you might get short-term benefits but there absolutely has to be the, the cost of that factored in over the next few years. And I see that some of them still getting funded, right? Fast, fast fashion, uh, improving e-commerce, like driving more and more capitalism, I think those things are, are negative, and I think VCs need to have a have a think about that because it's the question is going to be asked more challenging. But absolutely, we're talking about um, uh, products that are people want to buy, like and they need to buy. So and they just are, they just are better alternatives. EVs are just better cars. You, you'll be able to fill them up for a dollar twenty, and mm. um, they will be cheaper and faster and quieter with less pollution heat pumps for your house, it'll lower your costs. Like, I think this is the same question back to the jobs, right? We're not talking or, we're talking and. We're saying you, sh- you can have a build a profitable, valuable um, business and it can be climate positive. Um, I th- absolutely, it's both. 
Now, the interesting thing about these climate uh, companies is that they still have the same old challenges that businesses everywhere have and startups face. One of them is going global and then there are new ones such as measuring impact. That's a really big one and I see plenty of startups emerging on that particular issue alone addressing it. And then hardware. How do you tackle those issues? Yeah, look, for for me as someone who did a bit of hardware and uh, I was back in desktop software, don't tell people how old I am, but um, the... I love those floppy disks. I've still got some in the drawer. Yeah, three and a half, four, five and a quarter. That's that's going way back. But... um, Look, absolutely, there are some there are some harder things about climate, and we really recognise that, and we can't walk away from that. But on, you know, I was back building SaaS companies, I was building e-commerce companies when you had to build the whole thing yourself and payment gateways and everything. Now you just use Stripe or something else, and um, and but and that's the reality of SaaS is that over the 10, 15 years of SaaS growing, the village around SaaS has grown. So you're right. I think there is there is probably you know a hundred businesses which are going to be the village and the infrastructure and the framework for the other climate tech companies to measure, to grow, to to understand uh, soil quality, to understand air quality, to understand carbon value and consumer uh, behaviour changes. So so I think we've got to got to work on all fronts. But we can't like SAS didn't wait for Stripe to be in existence before payment gateways. It just and or measuring SAS. Right, actually measuring the funnel of SaaS, we didn't know how to do it to begin with. Now we have tools to go and do that. So the village will build around the, the industry and there are some really much harder things around it. Um, and who, look, who is the customer when you're trying to clean up the, the plastic in the Pacific Ocean? We all benefit from it by not having, I think it's a credit card of plastic we eat a year if you eat seafood. Mm-hmm. We all benefit from that, but who's the, who's the customer? There, there are hard things about that, no doubt, and it's not SaaS, but... My view is SaaS is becoming saturated. It's becoming harder to protect IP. People can move at a click and and transfer their data. There's real IP in hardware. There are benefits. I I see a lot of VCs saying, oh, my goodness, what, you've got real actually defensible IP? That's fantastic. Um, And it's a little bit harder to to develop. but And replicate, yeah. And replicate. But it also means less risk about um, one uh, one winner wins most. So in SaaS, you normally have one really, really big winner and a couple of small niches. But I don't think that's going to be the case, right? I think you, um, V2 Burger and Fable Burger and Impossible Burger, Beyond Burger, they can all exist. We can have multiple burgers, right? There's not going to be a single perfect burger. Uh, and the same thing with EVs, the same thing with heat pumps, like in all these areas. So I think there's a lot of positives. We just have to go and get there. I'm loving the let 100 burgers bloom sort of theory <laughs> you've got here. Let's get to our guests on the Startup Daily Show this week because one of them speaks to the things that you're speaking about and that, of course, is Cicada Innovation CEO Sally Ann Williams. She wrote a great piece for StartupDaily.net titled How to Leverage the Renewed Public Conversation on Science and Technology and came to talk to me about it on the show. It happened to be on the anniversary of the 1969 moon landing this week, so happy anniversary to, I'm trying to remember who's left from that nowadays. I you think know, you're Neil, trying to remember who, who landed on the moon. I thought, um, come on, Simon, I know you're, you're focused. But, but uh, you know, she talks about how the twin threats of the pandemic and global warming created a whole new public lexicon in which regular people now talk about tech advancements in things like mRNA sequencing, fossil fuel replacements, lab-grown meats, 
civilian space travel and more. And so we got her on to talk about this and how to think about tackling these particular issues when it comes to having the conversation. Here's what she said. There is a much broader conversation to be had about the role of science and technology and how it can actually produce solutions that can benefit us all. And the time is ripe. The time is ripe. I think the general public is hungry for it. Um, There's an optimism about what is possible, but more importantly, and I think we've seen this this week even with the you know the environmental report finally released, um, there's an urgency and there's a critical need to actually lean into challenges, recognise at the outset that we don't have the solutions right now, and you know to quote Matt Damon in The Martian, we've got to science the heck out of it um, to stay alive and to thrive, and so it's an opportunity for us to capitalise on it. But I think um, it's going to be a great show today. By the way, I think you can have this evolve conversation how we as entrepreneurs and founders and innovators need to be true and accurate about that science and what the potential is and what the warning signs are that it tells us but also be really honest about what it's not too you know we don't want to be Theranos and we don't want to over promise and under deliver we want to be really pragmatic and get that balance right about the fact that there's a lot of things we know that we need to implement there's a lot more we don't know and we need to fund that research in a drive to discovery so that then we can actually bring that through that full innovation value chain and deliver products and services to market. And, you know, the onus is on us as scientists and technologists and innovators to get really good at creating to everybody. But also, you know, uh, you've taken up the call today. You've got a great lineup of people that are actually going to tell their science and innovation stories all day. So I'm, I'm excited about that conversation and that opportunity and to invite more people in to be part of that solution and part of that journey that we need to see. So Mick, she references the environmental report and the urgency we see in that. She talks about leaning into the challenges and how the solutions are not always there. She quoted Matt Damon, you know, got a science the heck out of it. I'm glad you didn't say fortune favours the brave. Mm. I much prefer that particular comment from him. <laughs> but she also talked about being honest about what it's not and don't be a Theranos and telling the story of innovators Optimism is an issue. How do you tell the story of optimism when you are tackling something that a lot of people are scared about? Look, I, I think um, it's one of the uh, conflicts that entrepreneurs have to always deal with, the better ones. I, I think absolutely there's danger in, in um, drinking your own Kool-Aid and believing too much that you can solve all the world's problems. But the when we look at the complexity of climate problems, there is not going to be a single solution. There are people brilliantly focused on the thousand solutions we need. So there's some faith you have in that. And it's the reason why at our, at our climate tech showcases, like uh, we've got one coming up in Queensland on the 17th of August, um, where instead of having a few companies pitch long pitches, we get 30 companies to give short pitches. And the reason is we want to hear people, we want to have people hear other people's uh, other people solving these big problems. And that gives you some confidence to focus on your own area and say, it's okay. I don't have to solve everything. I just have to believe that I can go and solve this problem. But then we also want to bring that back to real validation. So we want lofty goals in terms of how big a company could be and how big a climate solution you can provide, but it has to be built step by step. It has to be built on real validation of like in the lab, I was able to suck a certain amount of carbon out of the environment. 
um, you know, it was one, one milligram, maybe I'll go to a kilogram next week and maybe I'll get to tons eventually. Like it's got to be built on real validation. Uh, so you've, you've got to combine it with hope and belief and that's what you've got to instill in your team, but it's got to be done with absolutely validated steps along the way. So we, we can't, can't ignore that. It's the other advantage of something like Climate Salad is you've got another 199 companies around you who are also um, solving these problems. So you've got the encouragement and support and therapy sessions of dealing with the tough stuff. Reminds me of the old how do you eat an elephant? One mouth at a time. One mouth all the time. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and, and with a friend. Bring some friends. Yeah, yeah. absolutely, yes. Yeah, so everyone tuck in. Now, I'd ask Sally about addressing fear. How do you tackle that around issues like climate change? She had some really good advice on this. This is what she said. My biggest advice around fear is to lean into the conversation because when you unpack what is fear... Fear is actually somebody grappling with the unknown and not having a neural pathway in their brain, literally not having a scientific connection to a solution that they can go, oh, this is what this is and this is the pattern of what it is. And so when you come to people and say, I'm afraid, I'm afraid of, you know, um, a solution to the pandemic, I'm afraid of a solution to climate change, I think we need to have a, a degree of optimism as well as reality and go, well, here's part of the solution that we know. Here's what it looks like to implement it. And here's what we still need to actually work on and discover. And so that honest kind of conversation and, and recognising who our audience is, you know, sometimes that audience isn't scientists or technology people. It's my parents who owned a fruit and veggie shop. And so how do I translate that in a language and a context that resonates with them and helps take them on the journey? Um, I think the biggest thing about fear is, you know, when you want somebody to overcome a fear, and if you think about this pragmatically about how we all overcome natural fears in our lives, if you're afraid of spiders or if we're afraid of flying or things, it's actually about learning to navigate and go through that challenge so that on the other side of it, it's maybe not so scary. And, and fear is just because we haven't done it before many, many times. So, you know, part of that is just taking people on that journey and taking them at a pace and a comfort level that they have and recognising that not everyone is going to put their foot to the, you know, their, their, their foot on the accelerator and drive at maybe 100 miles an hour that our founders are. So how do we balance those needs of communication and communicate the piece that brings them along and makes them part of it? But, you know, maybe that that sort of stuff that's still quite risky and we're still investigating and still discovering, we know hold back a little bit of that conversation because it's not necessarily the important thing that we need to, to communicate up front and, and, and in every way. But I think the number one thing that we can do, and it's one of the things I'm so glad about having conversations like this, is have more conversations about the potential, um, the challenges that we're facing, realistically understanding them and then looking to what could we do to mitigate against them. And, you know, I, I think it's it's quite funny that today is that day of the lunar landing. Today is also the day that we'd, you know, lined up to speak. But this week, we've had an environmental report come out that actually does that. It looks to the science, it looks to the metrics, it looks to the data, and it tells the story about what's happened. But it also gives us some advice and some forward looking about, well, this is what if if we choose to do something about it, which, you know, arguably, we definitely need to, um, here's the kinds of things that we can do. And so there is a hopeful outcome there, too. And 
And I think with any fear, we do need to provide that light at the end of the tunnel and that hope that we can point people to and invite them to come on that journey with us. So come on that journey, she said, you know, have a degree of optimism. Interesting, there's someone, you know, here she is running a deep tech business that is doing some extraordinary things on so many fronts. Her mum and dad were greengrocers and she, she thinks about how do I explain this to them? And learning to navigate challenges is how you overcome fears. I just think this is such really good advice and that light at the end of the tunnel. How do you paint that picture of the light at the end of the tunnel around climate tech? Yeah, it's, it's, it's difficult considering that um, sometimes we do need the full village in terms of these businesses to actually grow and we also need the world to change. Like some of these businesses only become really viable when the world fully prices in carbon or they fully understand the environmental damage. So a lot of them have this massive two-step process where you're hoping you're hoping you're going to be able to build the team, build a product, go get customers, and you're hoping the whole world... And then you're not too far in front of the rest of the peloton. Exactly. So they've talked previously about the Mr Burns test, which is um, would Mr Burns invested it as a, uh, as a money-hungry capitalist, regardless of the environmental benefits. But now they talk about the survivor test, which is can you actually build something which can survive long enough to get to the point where the world is now on the, on, the, on, the other, on the other side of the tipping point. So I think both those things are really, really important. And again, critical is to not do it, is to be able to focus but not be alone. Yeah. And that's the advantage of communities that we're finding around the world, like Climate Salad, is do what you do, be focused on what you're doing, but know that, that you've got people supporting you along the way. And it's massively collaborative, right? I, I don't know if it's the same in fintech and other cybersecurity and other areas, but in climate, we've all got this one big goal we're going towards and we're all supportive. I'm just trying to get my head around a Simpsons episode with Monty VC and Smithers being on the investment committee. That would be fun. I want to see it's that. It's been over 20 years, surely there's this one. <laughs> all right. Well, another one of the guests on the show this week was Matt Vitale, of course. He is the co-founder and MD of the crowdfunding platform Virtual. Now, they have had a pretty spectacular year. I'm going to let him talk through the numbers. Here's what he said about the 82% jump in funding in FY 2022. It's been another really strong year for equity crowdfunding. And, you know, as what we do is still fairly uh, new in Australia, you know, there, there's um, a lot of growth just from the increased awareness and utility of, uh, of what we do. Um, I'd say, look, we haven't been totally immune from the slowdown. Um, there's, a, you know, usually a really big spike of activity uh, bef before the end of the financial year every year. And uh, I think, as you've seen in the report, um, you know, some of the growth has been a little bit slower in the last quarter of the financial year. But, um, but all in all, a, a really, uh, a really strong result and, um, and, and a good kind of lead into FY23, you know, the new financial year. And um, hopeful that uh, that we're, we're going to be able to you know, stay open. Um, I think when a lot of other fund managers are um, taking their foot off the pedal or, or probably revising things, that there are still opportunities for, um, you know, all types of businesses to uh, uh, find believers and raise capital and, and, and stay in the game and, um, and uh uh, you know, execute their plans in, in what is otherwise a choppy environment. So interesting how he says, though, that even though it was gangbusters, they weren't immune from a slowdown and there was slower growth in the last quarter. But he remains bullish. Now, of the $86 million they raised, Nick, have a guess where a lot of the money went. And 
Good news is sustainability is in there, but there was a particular standout. It was beer, really. Um, food and beverage was the top one. 33 offers raised a total of nearly $30 million, 34% of all funds in crowdfunding last year. Of that, a subset of 12 campaigns was $15 million, so around about half of it, on beer, including, I have to say, non-alcoholic because sober beverages was amongst that mix. Here's Matt talking about the split this year. Beer and alcohol businesses accounted for just over half of uh, the total raised under the food and beverage category. So, you know, probably an argument for a subcategory in and of itself. Um, but, um, you know, uh, crowdfunded, uh, sorry, uh, craft breweries had a pretty quiet year a couple of years ago, particularly coming through COVID, which is not, not that surprising, but they've come back with a vengeance, which is great. Um, these are great businesses to be uh, involved in, lots of exciting businesses and strong brands um, in the environment. But um, a lot of really interesting stories, with, particularly with the craft beer industry. You know, there's been some high-profile acquisitions of uh, craft brewers over the last few years um, and some really big names, which really kind of brings into question what it means to be an independent brewer these days. And I suppose, you know, looking long-term, um, Equity crowdfunding is another source of capital for what are pretty capital-intensive businesses. You know, we're hopeful that um, these businesses will be able to remain independent for longer and and uh, and, and really ensure that we have a thriving and diverse um, uh, craft beer industry. But yeah, food and beverage really predominated by alcohol and uh, and, and beer-related uh, campaigns. So there you go. Yeah, have, have, you know. Did you come to a fork in the road where you're thinking, I could go off and become a microbrewer and sort of do green beer, you know, or will I do climate salad? You weren't tempted? I'm, I'm, I've been very big and bullish on the uh, non-alcoholic beers, actually, um, sober beer, sober and, um, and heaps normal and others. Yeah. So, I, look, I, I think that's the thing about... The great thing about this, is actually, is that Australia has more legitimate funding options. Where previously it used to be... Um, you know, family, friends and fools and a, a handful of VCs, um, it was pretty tough going. But now we've got Tractor Ventures doing revenue-based finance, we've got Birchall and others doing equity run, uh, raising. Um, and, and I get that, that that's, it really suits if the, con, if the consumer or the, the end investor has a strong connection. Now, they may not have a strong connection to, uh, you know, soil measurement technology unless you're a farmer, um, but beer and, and consumer goods absolutely makes complete sense. But I'm glad, again, Zero, Zero Co., fantastic example. Love the company, love what they're doing, and it's an example of a great overlap, right? There are, there are, there are things that do both. Could I just say there's a cracking advertising campaign out for a certain Queensland beer that doesn't know how to spell beer, so they call it 4X. Okay. Right now, sort of saying, even if you basically don't give a shit about climate change, you know what? It's going to bugger up the hops we make beer with. So you better care about climate change if you want to keep drinking beer. Yeah. Really great pitch, really clever pitch. It's like, you know, find something someone cares about, beer. Like, we need to act, guys. Yeah. You don't get to drink beer. We're going to take away your toys. It's, yeah. it's I, quite a I, I clever message. I told my message. parents the same thing about wine. Uh, <laughs> wine's in real trouble, right? Yeah. Chocolate is in real trouble. And I, so... I say this, I'm doing a Master's of Sustainable Development and I keep saying to the professor, stop talking about two degrees warming because no-one understands yeah. it, right? Yesterday it was only 15, tomorrow it's 25. What are you talking about two degrees? Like, yeah. But 
my be- what do you mean my beer is going to be gone? What do you mean my wine's going to be gone? You've got to yeah. talk to people about things that impact them because we can't wait to everyone to have a heat wave and a bushfire or a flood personally impact them. Yeah. Yeah, we've got to bring some of these things forward. And food is by far one of the biggest. So there's overlaps in all of this. It touches everything. In Sydney, you're not going to get your washing dryer and you won't be able to afford the tumble dryer. It's that simple. You know, it's maybe, that sort of thing. Maybe. Now, here's the interesting thing about the Birchill campaign. Sustainability was the second most invested industry in FY 2022. Nine campaigns, raising a total of $13.2 million. Of course, Zero Co., the fantastic Byron Bay business, raised $5 million in a record round. But, you know, there's a real theme emerging here. Planet protective packaging, power, renewable energy are all part of it too. Here's Matt on sustainability and the virtual campaigns. Sustainability has always been a really uh, strong category. I think this year in particular, though, uh, certainly after the election, there was a lot of um, uh, companies that are in this space that were thinking about opening offers and, and were probably a little bit un- uncertain, as you would imagine, about the, the, the policy direction post the election and so on. Um, uh, you know, but we, we had some really stellar results. Line Hydrogen, um, so they're, they're, they're funding a hydrogen uh, project in Tasmania, which we're really excited about. They raised one and a half million dollars. Uh, Grong Grong Solar Farm, they raised their maximum target of $750,000. Um, you know, this is an opportunity for people to invest in a solar farm. Um, and uh, Indigo Power, another one, a, a renewable-focused energy retailer in regional Victoria, they came back for their second raise, um, raising just over $1.2 million. And um, it's, it's, you know, really nice to see that there are a lot of these opportunities brought to the market, retail investors can, can get involved in, um, but, you know, people just looking to, uh, I, I suppose, support uh, the, the, the growth of um, our renewable energy industry in, in this country and, uh, yeah, hopefully more to come. So there's a great democracy in this in terms of retail investors. Do you think that's a good way to tackle this, sort of the retail side of it, if you are a climate tech startup thinking about, let's go back to the beer and wine, yeah. you know, if you can sell that environmental message, can you get your retail investors along to back that story? Look, what I love about it is the connection through to actual customers. If a customer loves you so much that they're prepared to invest in you, then uh, that's that's a big triple tick in my in my view. So for the right business, but we're talking we've got hydrogen there and planet protective packaging. They're, they're climate salad members. I love them to bits. But their packaging, and you've got to really care and understand about that. But that's the reality. We see that now. How many like I don't my garage every month or so gets full of delivery boxes and I'm like, this is bad. Like, like we've got to have better answers to this. But I'm seeing Planet Protector packaging in those. Uh, I think it's a great way to connect with customers and it's just for the good validation. I actually love Planet Protector packaging for a whole new reason. It provides a new blanket for my worm farm because, <gasps> of course, you recycle that part of it, the yep. wool, over the top of, of your farm. So I just think that's a really, really cool thing that they do. I get it in my food deliveries too, and it's, mm. I think they're doing an amazing job. I've got two worm farms, just saying, so yeah. <laughs> just don't want to Are you, are you yeah. my worm I'm, farm's totally bigger than your you. worm farm? Totally, my yeah. worm farm's bigger You're than outworming me. Yeah. All right, okay. Um, look, th- we're going to pivot away from that to a big issue that also um, is continued to emerge, and that's cybersecurity. And this week we had Julie Bowen, who is the Senior VP of Operations and Outreach, at the US not-for-profit MITRE Corporation here in Australia. She's also their chief legal officer. She was in Adelaide on Monday as part of a week-long trip to Australia. 
to address the Australian Cyber Collaboration Centre at Lot 14 in Adelaide. Um, I was really interested in what these guys do because they're working in defence and a whole bunch of other areas. The business has been around for quite a long time. So I started by asking Julie a little bit about MITRE. What is it? What do they do? Here's what she said. So MITRE was established in 1958. We are an independent um, organisation. We primarily operate what's called a federally funded research and development centre, and that's in the United States. And um, we are very diverse. We work across all of agencies and government, and we really try to work on, you know, the nation's and global largest challenges, um, certainly working in the public interest, um, trying to make the world a safer place. Um, very diverse work stream, but again, cyber is something we have um, about 1,300 employees that work primarily in cyber, and we need to increase that because, as we've talked about earlier, just incredible demand and um, thrilled to be a big part of that, and it spans everything we do and everything that we're working towards. Now, the amazing number in that, Mick, is 1,300 employees now working on the cybersecurity front and plans to hire more. So if you are losing your job at the moment, i probably pretty sure that no one who's working in cybersecurity is amongst those people, but there's definitely opportunities in that. So MITRE has got the Information Integrity and Defence Centre in Adelaide, SID as it's known. So I asked her all about what the centre was doing and its ambitions. So the centre was established to really work on the hardest problems in cybersecurity. So we started with insider threat, which obviously is a, is a very critical problem that organizations and governments face. Um, we're working on some defense strategies called Engage, um, doing some supply chain security, which is obviously integral to all of our critical infrastructure systems, and um, just really starting to engage the community and start working on some of these incredibly hard problems. So that's Julie Bowen on the incredibly hard problems that they're all trying to tackle. And, and to me, I see the parallel there. And, you know, cybersecurity is a whole bunch of emerging problems that we hadn't predicted previously. Climate change, we've got an idea, but we haven't figured out how to solve all of them. And we're working on that sort of thing. When you look across the startup sector and you've been doing it for a long time, do you think that there are universal themes and the way we tackle problem solving, irrespective of what sector you're in? There's definitely um, moving themes. So there's like what, what strengths do we have as an industry in Australia? But it still comes down to a founding team wanting to be passionate and skillful enough to want to pursue a problem for 10 years or, or longer and try to really solve it. And then you marry that up with the bigger long-term trends. So absolutely cybersecurity is not going away. It's a consequence of the world becoming more digital, more complicated, um, and the fact that there's uh, there are <laughs> some some people who are willing to exploit that. So absolutely it's not going away at, 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 all, at all levels. And Australia, you know, I think um, there's been um, some great programs. There's the fantastic accelerator program out of, out of Melbourne and um, some people, Scott Hansacker and others, really driving that hard. Uh, I was entrepreneur in residence in San Francisco when the cybersecurity companies came through and I was just incredibly impressed by the depth of talent we have in Australia. So, like, I think there are, uh, there are, there are jobs and there are problems to solve and they'll continue to, 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 um, to keep growing. Julie does make some points about that. We'll get to that in a minute. But I did ask her about whether cyber is the new arms race. And, you know, you are dealing with this bigger mouse, better mousetrap, chasing your tail thing all the time. This is what she said about that. So that's exactly it. We are going to get bigger mice and we need bigger, bigger mouse traps. 
Um, you know, it's just one of those things we're going to be living with. Um, you know, one of the things we love about the Cyber Collaboration Center is bringing all of the organizations together with government to really work on these challenges because our adversaries collaborate. They work very well together. They share information. And again, you know, the bigger the army gets, the more defensive we need to be and definitely need to be on the offensive. Now, interesting point she makes around collaboration because, of course, adversaries have been doing it already and so we need to get our stuff together to make it happen on our side. Some really fascinating insights she's got there and working at a global level through MITRE, so I did ask her about Australia and its value to the US in cyber and collaboration. This is what she said about that. When I first came to the Australian Cyber Collaboration Centre here in Adelaide, I believe I first came about four years ago, um, thanks to um, former Premier Marshall, a great vision that um, you know, we needed to build workforces, we needed to work together on these hard problems. And I think Adelaide really is unique in its collection of universities that are in close proximity, um, the numbers of organizations that are here, a number of companies that are here. And that's really why MITRE sees this as an excellent resource for our cybersecurity um, missions and goals outside of the United States. So as you said, Mick, she gave Australia a big pat on the back for the work that we're doing here and how pleased they are to be collaborating with Australian cybersecurity businesses. Yeah, very exciting. I think there is, um, uh, it goes again to the fact that we've built a broader industry here that's able to focus on these particular areas and uh, I think there will be uh, more and more jobs going forward. Mick Lubinskis, great to have you on SUDS today. Thanks for a great conversation. Of course, as Sally Ann said, it's a conversation we need to keep having. We have to keep talking about the beer and wine so that people kind of, it really hits home. But uh, we're thrilled to have it on Startup Daily. Great to have it with you as always. That's SUDS for this week. Of course, you can catch the Startup Daily show at 2pm on Monday, Monday to Thursday now. I'm having Fridays off as we focus on cybersecurity, which is kind of nice. But of course, you can also read more on startupdaily.net. That's it for this week. Have a great weekend, everyone. Bye for now.